We are continuing our series in Matthew that we began last week. It feels a little odd that we're uh, talking about the Christmas story, but it's October. Uh, But I'm sure there's someone in the congregation who's already listening to Christmas music. Anyone want to confess that? Anyone listening to Christmas music yet? All right. All right. Maybe this isn't a place to be real with one another. Uh, I, I love Christmas, and it's, it's good to always, you know, to not wait until December to reflect upon these stories. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, and we're looking at the birth of Jesus, or really um, the, the, the events that take place right before the birth of Jesus. And as we read this passage and think about it, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the crisis of Christmas the comfort of Christmas, and finally, the courage of Christmas. So the the crisis, the comfort, and the courage of Christmas. Would you follow along as I read Matthew 1, 18 through 25? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it stands the test of time. We thank you that it points us to our Savior, Jesus, and the hope and comfort that we have in him. I pray this morning, would you speak through me, would you clarify my words, and would you move in our hearts as we hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, first we're going to look at the crisis of Christmas. Um, Growing up, uh, I wasn't much of a video game player, but growing up I did play uh, the Legend of Zelda. Anyone else play Zelda? Maybe as a kid, maybe as an adult. Uh, one of the things that's pretty common in the game Zelda, and pretty common, I think, in a lot of video games like that, you go around uh, a world and you battle bosses. And you have to overcome bosses. And then at the end of the game, there's the one final big boss. Uh, and you realize that all these other bosses were kind of like, sub-bosses to the main bad guy. Um, When we come to a text like this, uh, a text of a miracle, 
uh, it's kind of like encountering sub-bosses. Let, let me explain. There are objections that people have to things like this. There, there are objections and challenges that people bring to this text or texts like it. And yet, even after each one of those challenges or objections are dealt with, I believe that there is a main boss, a big boss behind that. And I'm going to call that the crisis. So there's these little objections. And even though we can tackle these objections, there's a crisis that waits us even beyond that. So this morning, I'm, I'm going to tackle just two of these objections real quick and get them out of the way so that we can actually encounter the real boss, the crisis of Christmas. I, I think the, the first objection that people bring to a text like this, I'm going to call the textual challenge. And, and it's an objection that the text itself can't mean that a virgin conceived. Because that's really the issue, is Mary is a virgin, and yet now she's pregnant. It's a miracle. It can't happen. And the textual challenge is, if you look at the words, it doesn't mean what it says. You maybe, maybe you have thought this, maybe you've read it or heard it. When I was an undergrad studying at a non-Christian university in world religions, this is what they would say, that if you look at the word virgin in verse 23, behold, the virgin if you look at that word, that word doesn't mean what we think it means. That's what they'd say. They would say, today, when we read this word, the emphasis is on the sexual experience or lack thereof of the person. But in the days of Matthew and Isaiah, they didn't have that in mind. They would say, well, that word really has more to do with the age of the woman. Um, so they'd say, we should translate this young woman. Behold, the young woman will conceive. And I want to just address that real quick. That's the challenge. The word doesn't mean what we think it means. Um, when we look at this word in the Old Testament and how else it's used in all the other books of the Old Testament... Uh, this word, in all but one case, implies the sexual experience or lack thereof of the object, the woman. In every case except for one, it's implied that the person that they're talking about is, in fact, a virgin, as we would understand it. The one case in, in Proverbs chapter 30, our Bibles translate this word as maiden, but most commentators are mixed and say, actually, we could even translate that word virgin too. That the word in the Old Testament implies virgin as we understand it. And if you take the Greek word in all of the New Testament, every time there's four other cases in which that word is translated in our New Testament, every single time the emphasis falls on the sexual purity of the person talking about. So the textual argument doesn't stand. This word actually means what we think it means. The second challenge that I'm going to talk about, maybe you've thought about this one, I'm going to call it the rational challenge. That, that it, we, as rational, scientific 
people today, we can't believe this. They would say the people back in Matthew's day, in the pre-scientific age, they believed a bunch of irrational things. They were so gullible and susceptible to believing these crazy stories. But we today, well, we know better. That couldn't have happened. Maybe you have heard someone say that about miracles in the Bible. Maybe you yourself hold on to something like that. I want you to know that I think that it's, I think that it's uninformed to presume that people that lived in older ages than us were more susceptible or gullible than we are today. I think that that's a, I think that's a uninformed understanding of the progress of history. And in fact, there's a famous, well-known philosopher from the 50s BC, so in the century before Jesus. His name was Lucretius, and he was a Roman poet. And we have his work. So he was known and popular. His works were recorded and copied down. And, and he says, in the first century BC, he does not like religion. He thinks that religion is bad for society, both pagan religion and Jewish religion. And he says, because these religions confuse individual believers into thinking the impossible is possible. They convince people to believe in things that could not exist under the real physical conditions of the world. Sound familiar? The same arguments we hear today have been made for 2,000 years. People back then were, had the same exact objections that people have today. And on top of that, on top of that, millions of professing believers today in our scientific world, in our rational world, believe in the virgin birth along with the other miracles of Jesus. So to say that people back then didn't object to it and people today do, it doesn't hold. People back then objected to it. People today believe it. The textual challenge doesn't stand. The rational challenge doesn't stand. We defeat them at every turn. And yet, I think behind each of these, there's a crisis. I think the big crisis when people come to this text is this. If it's true that God has broken into our world and has done the miraculous, if it's true that God has broken in and upended the way things are supposed to be, well, then why did he not do that for me? If it's true that God can do these kinds of miraculous things, why has he not shown up in my life? I think that's actually the crisis behind these objections. When you have faced someone you love or you yourself go through pain and suffering and you have cried out, God, step in. It's hard to believe this story when he hasn't stepped in to your life. When you are stuck in the midst of an addiction and you're suffering and you're trapped and enslaved and you need the hand of God to bring you out, 
and you read this story that says he can, and yet he hasn't done that for you, that's a crisis. The crisis of Christmas is that if God can step into the world and do something miraculous, why hasn't he done that for me? I think everyone has a reason to feel at a crisis. I think everyone wishes God would step in and do something. That's why I think the story of Christmas doesn't just reveal a crisis. The story of Christmas also shows us comfort. Let's look at the comfort of Christmas The comfort of Christmas is this. You are not alone in that suffering. You are not alone in that pain. You are not alone even when you feel it. We read this in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. The story of Christmas reminds us that we are not alone, that God actually is with us in the midst of our pain. He comes to us in Jesus, into the brokenness and darkness of this world, into the pain and corruption of this world to be with us. That's what his name, Emmanuel, means. He has drawn near to us in our pain. In the life of Jesus, we know that he suffered. We know that he was rejected by his neighbors in his hometown. We know that as he traveled around and taught, people mocked him and laughed at him and rejected him. We know that even one of his closest 12 turned him in. And when he was dying on the cross, his closest friends deserted him. He knows our pain. He knows our weaknesses too. He was a man as fully as you and I are men and women. That means he got tired and he got hungry and he was exhausted. He knows what we feel like on Friday at the end of the week when we've had kids sick all week, when we've been at work toiling all week, when, we, when we're at our worst. He knows the weakness of flesh. And he knows our temptation. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He experienced that. We're not alone in our darkness. Jesus promised that after he would leave, he would send another, his own spirit. And he calls that spirit the comforter, the helper, the counselor. Right before Jesus leaves earth into heaven, he says, and behold, I am with you until the end of the age. You are not alone. Jesus is with us. 
He knows what we're going through. He knows our pain and our suffering. But the comfort of Christmas doesn't just say, you are not alone. The comfort of Christmas says, the one who is with you will save you. Emmanuel means God is with us, but we know him as Jesus, which means God will save us. Jesus is from Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh will save. The one who is with us will save us. And he says that he will save us from our sins. According to Scripture, sin is not just what is inside of us that makes us do bad things. That's certainly true. Sin is the root cause of all calamity in the world. That's what Scripture says about sin. Sin, yes, is what is within us that makes us disobey and rebel against God. But sin is also at the root of why other men and women hurt us. So we, are, we feel the effects of sin, not just the consequences of sin. And this world itself is corrupted because of sin. We are weak and we suffer and we are in pain because of sin. Not always because of our sin, but because of sin in general. And the comfort of Christmas says Jesus can save us from sin. He can save us from our sin and he himself will do it, not us. He himself will save us, not us. We cannot save ourselves, but we certainly try, don't we? Sometimes we make our sin and rationalize it to be so small, and in doing so, we try to save ourselves from it. We say, well, that didn't really matter, or I, you know, I didn't really mean what I said, or it was just a small lie. No one saw what I did. That's us trying to save ourselves. Other times, we don't make the sin small. We just try to cover it up, to get away with it, to cover our bases, make sure no one finds out about it. That's trying to save ourselves from sin. And other times, we try to fight it. We struggle against it, wrestle under our own strength. We try to deal with our own sin, but Jesus has come, and he himself will save us from our sin. How does he do that? Our, our assurance of forgiveness from Isaiah itself, the same book in which is prophesied that we will have God with us. This very person that the virgin is going to give birth to, later in Isaiah's book, he tells us exactly how this Savior will save us. Did you catch it? He will be wounded for our transgressions. 
He will be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment for our sin that made us whole. By his bruises, we are healed. How does Jesus come to save us from our sin? He saves us from our sin by bearing the curse of our sin, by bearing the punishment from our sin. He is our substitute. He's the one that makes payment for us, redeeming us from it, rescuing us from it. The comfort of Christmas is that we don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. Finally, not only do we see the crisis of Christmas and the comfort of Christmas, we also see in this passage the courage of Christmas. And this is what I mean. This comfort, like all gifts at Christmas, is free. All you have to do is receive it and open it up like you do on Christmas morning. It is yours. You don't have to work for it. It is freely given to you. And yet, just as Jesus says, count the cost before you follow me, there is some amount of courage within us that we must have to take that gift and receive it. And if we look at the life of Joseph, we will see what kind of courage it takes to welcome Jesus. Because he was faced with that same dilemma. Do I receive Jesus into my life? Or do I quietly divorce Mary and go my own way? But Joseph shows us the kind of courage it takes to receive this gift. He shows us this courage in, in two ways. The first way is Joseph shows the courage that he, he, he doesn't shrink back from this. He steps up and in. The angel says, Joseph, do not fear taking Mary for your wife. Do not fear. Do not shrink back. Do not cower away. Take courage. He stepped up. He knew that taking Mary to be his own was going to change his life. We know that he was a just man. He followed the law. He, he had a carpentry business. We learned that later. Joseph was going about his life. He was betrothed. He had a, an ideal life ahead of him. He wanted to have a family. He wanted to work where he worked. He wanted to live where he lived. His life was going perfect. And then it was found out that his fiance was pregnant. The Lord said, don't cower away from this. Step up. Take her to be your wife. Yeah, that might mean not living where you want to live. Yeah, that might mean having a family that you didn't want to have. Yeah, that might mean giving up your dream life. But don't shrink back from that. Step up. Have courage to do what I've called you to do. In two chapters, we're going to see uh, they're running for their life. And the angel says, Joseph, do not shrink back. Take your family down into Egypt. And he does. And then they come out of Egypt, and they're going to go to Jerusalem. And then there's fear that they're going to die there. And the angel says, 
Don't shrink back. Take courage. Step up. Live in Nazareth. And he does. Joseph shows us tremendous courage of what it means to not shrink back from what God is calling us to do, but stepping up, even if it means giving up something that you so dearly treasure and long for. That's the first kind of courage, courage that says, I'm going to step up and do what God has called me to do. And I, I, I think that it's really easy for us as Christians to get into the, uh, the mundane, rote uh, day in and day out, hey, I, I, I come to church, I, I check in, I do what I'm supposed to do, and that's it. But I, I think that following Jesus means not shrinking back and doing the bare minimum. It means stepping up, stepping in, pressing in, doing what God has called you to do, living with one another in fellowship, obeying his commands, confessing our sin, seeking repentance, Brothers and sisters, let's step up and be courageous like Joseph. But I think the second way Joseph shows us courage is, this is the key. Joseph saw that Mary was with child. It was unavoidable. Her, her, her bump got so big that you just couldn't ignore it anymore. And he, being a just man, sought to divorce her in secret. Look, he could have um, dragged her out to the middle of the city. He could have made a public spectacle of it. He chose to, you know, he wanted to show her honor. And when the angel says, take her, he knew that taking her to be his wife was going to bring public shame upon himself. They would be known as the family with the child of questionable background. Joseph showed the kind of courage to be willing to be humiliated with Jesus. He was willing to be humiliated with Jesus. Are we willing to be humiliated with Jesus? I think for some of us, that's going to mean being, being okay with talking about Jesus more with those around us and being okay with being humiliated. I think for some of us, it means being okay with the humiliation that comes from uh, being honest about our sin, confessing it, bringing it to the light. It's okay to be humiliated with Jesus. It's okay to follow him in that. The story of Christmas shows us the kind of courage it takes to follow Jesus, to receive him. And it shows us that above all, Jesus is the one that models it. I mean, God gave it all up. He came into this world. He gave up glory on the throne in heaven. He gave all that up into our brokenness, our weakness, our, our sin. And God was humiliated on the cross, stripped naked in front of the crowd, bearing our sin, dying a sinner's death. 
so that if we receive him, if we embrace him, if we give it all up and follow him, man, we will follow him not only into the grave, but into the heavens. Because not only was Jesus humiliated, he was then exalted, raised up from the grave, and brought into heaven, seated at the right hand of God on high. Friends, Christmas reminds us that there is a crisis, but there is comfort. God is with us, and we can have that if we have the courage to follow him. If we follow him, even through humiliation, we will rise with him in glory. Let's pray.